0: COVID-19 is a fully global phenomenon, and thus, a fully global economic crisis. (music) Development and trade, some of the most important subject matters in terms of the global economy, have been affected in devastating ways. How government's been handling those matters. Joshua Miller sits down with Douglas Redeker to discuss today on Think Critical Podcast. Due to us recording at home this week, audio quality may dip at times. Thank you for your patience and for listening to Think Critical. Mr. Redeker, could you introduce yourself?
1: Uh, I am a non-resident senior fellow at the uh, um, the Brookings uh, Global Development and International Economy Group, and also the Foreign Policy, the Center on the U.S. and Europe.
0: So, um, I think the the first question we're going to lead off with today. Is really um, what has the pandemic told us about the way which the, the you know, the global economy functions and, uh, you know, how have the, how has the mechanics changed under the pandemic from what it was before?
1: Well, the pandemic, um, you know, reflected the the global nature of not only the economy but just society uh, as a whole. So, in the past, pandemics often stayed epidemics, which means they were more locally based, um, simply because the level of interaction and, and global travel. Uh, and trade, but it was really the travel and, and overall interaction that was more limited. Uh, so I'm not sure that the pandemic exposed as much about the global economy and its interlinkages as it did about just the world in which we live and the global interconnectivity. But what it means is that uh, you know a virus that presumably started in a market in Wuhan, China, uh, quickly spread around the world. Um, as. You know, not only trade linkages, but just overall individual societal linkages reflected the fact that you can't keep things localized the way you could maybe, you know, 50, 100 or 1,000 years ago.
0: So do you think that in general... The pandemic is going to um, sort of cause i guess a reversal of that a reversal of, of globalization where you know there's going there's going to be you know a definite trend towards closing down economies closing down global interaction
1: well i don't think you're going to see a closing down of global economies and globalization and global interaction uh, but i don't I also don't think that the pandemic has materially changed what was already a dynamic that existed uh, based on factors other than the COVID virus, which was a move towards reshoring, towards more uh, national protectionism, uh, and less a belief that free markets and globalized trade were an unfettered, unquestioned good unto themselves. So uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly Uh, reinforced some of those more nationalist tendencies, but it didn't start them and it may have accelerated them, but they were already accelerating. So the move towards in this country, in the United States, towards reshoring towards supply chains, towards not being dependent on other countries as much for crucial supplies, however you want to define crucial supplies uh, that predated the COVID crisis. And is likely to outlast the COVID crisis, but the COVID crisis is certainly consistent with what was already taking place in the global economy.
0: So, in effect, like some of the um, the effects of the pandemic and of the crisis are really symptoms of populism, and not almost uh, and not directly caused by the by the pandemic itself, but also. Uh, because of the environment of populism we've seen for like the past four years, you know, past five years, I think really starting with Brexit, I think is the one of like the clear marking points sort of we've, we're seeing, right?
1: Well, I think Brexit and the election of Donald Trump and then uh, President Bolsonaro in Brazil and others are clearly uh, symptoms of the populist trend that you're describing. Uh, but again, I think that populism is almost definitionally a negative word because it implies an extreme uh, an extreme manifestation of what is not necessarily a bad thing, meaning the belief that free trade at all costs, globalization at all costs was somehow a, a cause worth uh, pursuing at all costs. Uh, has has been shown to have been flawed and so short of populism and nationalism which i would argue are negative and that belief that globalization is an unquestioned good there is a middle ground that I think the world and this country were moving towards anyway and covid 19 has certainly exacerbated some of those dynamics. But again, I would be—I'd uh, be hesitant to say populism is the way I would frame it, because whereas Bolsonaro, Trump, and Brexit were, in fact, manifestations of populism, uh, the dynamics of retrenching against globalization—you know, 100% globalization—predated uh, that and will likely outlive any. Uh, post Trump, post uh Bolsonaro, and who knows what happens post Brexit uh, dynamic worldwide.
0: So, what does this uh, middle ground reference sort of look like? If you give like a brief description of it.
1: Well, you're seeing it right now in in certainly in the U.S. and and elsewhere, uh, at least amongst the Democratic Party platform and, uh, you know, various other policy choices that are being thrown around here and elsewhere. Uh, It's basically realizing that uh, there are risks to outsourcing key parts of your supply chain, key parts of your technology, key parts of your security to the cheapest bidder anywhere in the world. Uh, because they may not always be reliable allies uh, in continuing to provide that, and then you're left shorthanded. So uh, the ability to create you know, good jobs in your country, the U.S. or elsewhere, uh, at fair wages, as opposed to simply looking to outsource everything simply because you can get a cheaper product built somewhere else – makes you more dependent on those other countries and those other pieces of the supply chain. So you're seeing you know, a much greater sense of balance between workers' rights, between citizens' rights, between national security interests, technological interests, um, technology dependency, especially as you move into 5G and beyond. You are seeing a greater sense of strategic thinking as opposed to simply lowest-cost economic thinking. And that's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that you always want to be protectionist. In fact, protectionism is an evil. Protectionism, nationalism, populism are all things that I would say, in their extreme case, are bad. But some element of that is something that needs to be balanced against the, the Uh, pure, unfettered forces of market capitalism would suggest a much more cutthroat sense of markets than uh, a more balanced economy and and a more balanced security functioning of a country might suggest is appropriate. To some degree, the U.S. has already seen this trickle into the mainstream when groups like the Business Roundtable, which are a manifestation of corporate America writ large, have already come out in favor of a broader definition of capitalism to include stakeholder capitalism, something closer to, though not identical to, what Europe has had for many years, where uh, there is a, a, a broader sense of stakeholder as opposed to shareholders, as the responsibility of market participants and businesses to try and balance those uh, collective and individual rights and come up with something other than simply this pure form of what's good for shareholders is good for the country and is good for the company. Uh, You're already seeing that. And I think that that's a manifestation of this, this greater sense of balance.
0: Yeah, so if it were up to you, when you're um, constructing trade deals, like what are what are the clauses you include? Are you trying to maximize uh, the lowering of costs? Or are you trying to accomplish something related to to workers' rights or climate change? Or are you trying to preserve wages in your in your home country? So, if you if you were to give advice to garments, what would it really be?
1: Well. Look, trade deals are enormously complicated, and they are thousands of pages long for a reason. And so there's no short answer to your question. Governments that negotiate with trade deals are seeking to lower impediments to trade because more trade is generally better than less trade. It's better for growth. It's better for workers. It's better for producers. It's better for most interests. However... There are environmental factors, there are losses of jobs, there are, uh, you know, protected industries that warrant protection. And so trade deals, if you go back to the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was originally suggested by the Bush administration, and it was supposed to be the shortest trade agreement ever. Because as an aspiration, they said, let's just cut the tariffs and the non-tariff barriers to trade wherever possible for the widest array of countries and create more trade. And it turned out that the Trans-Pacific Partnership took over a decade to negotiate. And it is thousands of pages long. And it turns out the United States, which came up with the idea in the first place, has withdrawn from participation anyway. So the idea that that you can point to a here's what I would advise on a trade agreement uh, oversimplifies the basic premise. Trade agreements are there to try and create free, fair, safe, balanced trade that grows the global economy and the economies of the participating countries without undue hardship, on individuals, on individual sectors, on individual uh, interests, and on the environment and on workers' rights and others. Um, so it is a very complicated process um, and, and one that has evolved over time. But, you know, am I in favor of trade agreements? I'm very much in favor of as many free trade agreements as we can embrace, but on terms that make sense. And of course, the way it works in the United States. Is you need to have Congress sign off on trade agreements, and so given that Congress is, uh, you know, representative of individual and collective states and districts and individual rights, those trade agreements uh, that do ultimately get passed and signed into law tend to take very seriously uh, the issues that I just described
0: so uh more on the tpp um so biden hasn't made a comment and assuming that biden does win in november biden hasn't made a comment whether he's going to rejoin or not rejoin it but i know kamala harris who's you know his potential vp almost can, if he wins it's probably gonna be his vp um has said that she wants to rejoin the tpp so would you do you think that uh, just a just a I guess um, with the normal rejoining process, would that be a good idea for the United States? Or do you think that there's some more more renegotiation or perhaps a new agreement should be made?
1: There's no TPP left to join. The TPP is is gone. It has been replaced by something called the CPTPP, which is a similar but different agreement entered into by – most, not all of the other participants of what was originally the TPP. So the option to join or rejoin the TPP doesn't exist. Whether the U.S. engages in negotiation with the existing um, members of the CPTPP to see if there are terms on which the U.S. would seek to join. Uh, That's an open question. I think, as I say, I think that for strategic reasons as well as economic ones, uh, having a U.S. participation in a uh, trans-Pacific trade agreement is a good thing, but on terms that would need to be renegotiated. What I believe Biden has said is he's not negotiating any new trade agreements for the foreseeable future until certain other issues are addressed. Uh, And I would suggest, given what a Biden administration is likely to inherit, uh, negotiating entry into a new trade agreement with the existing members of the CPTPP is probably not the top of the agenda, given the other issues that will be inherited by a Biden administration in 2021.
0: Um, How has, like, the crisis and the way the crisis of coronavirus been been addressed, you know, differently between, like, first world nations and world nations? And specifically, how has, like, the economic development of many of the rising nations across the world been, you know, changed or affected by the crisis?
1: Well, they've suffered dramatically, and they'll continue to suffer, sadly, for some time to come. Uh, First of all, there's a demand shock. So for exports, if you have global demand shock, then those who are seeking to supply the the goods that are demanded, if there's a decline in demand, then there's a decline in the demand for those goods, so your exports decline. There's also a decline in remittances. So countries that rely on uh, workers in the United States, for example, to send back funds to help them. Uh, their relatives, presumably, and, and others uh, continued to, to thrive, uh, was expected to decline more than it actually has. Uh, but nevertheless, there are certain countries where remittances are, in fact, down. Um, and then, of course, they have to spend a huge amount of their, their time, energy, and, and funds uh, to address the health crisis itself. And so, uh, you know, you've got uh, multiple factors that are drawing on, uh, that are weighing on developing countries uh, and emerging markets in in the crisis. Uh, There are those that are, for example, energy exporters. And we had a huge hit to uh, oil prices earlier in this year, somewhat rebounding since, but nevertheless, uh, even if you lose a month or two or three of your energy exports, if your economy is deeply uh, dependent on those energy exports, then obviously, it's harder to come back from it. Um, But there's also just a question of uh, what happens next. And the economic model, if you go back to the earlier conversation about reshoring, and a a withdrawal from an unfettered belief in uh, globalization and supply chains. Uh, Nobody knows what that's going to look like. But if countries like the United States and others start to um, emphasize domestic production of goods that were otherwise an export from some developing country, then it is likely that that developing country will suffer the economic consequences of uh, the U.S. and other countries starting to do whatever it was they were doing in that country before, doing some of that at home. Uh, And so there are going to be consequences to that that are structurally significant. We just don't know what they are yet. And the last point I'd make on developing markets is developing markets have, over the years, uh, become increasingly dependent on two forms of finance, one of which is bilateral lending from China, in part from what is known as the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, and secondly, uh, through the capital markets. So, bondholders around the world that used to never have access to or interest in countries like well, let's just say uh, developing countries around the world, including Africa, uh, Latin America, Asia, et cetera, now have deep exposure, in some cases, to those countries, um, and they expect to get those bonds repaid, as does China. And if countries are now suddenly looking to the IMF and other institutions, uh, multilateral and international financial institutions, for support, there's a real question about whether, uh, let's say, IMF money, should be used to uh, provide funding to countries that needed for crisis response, where those countries turn around and use that money to repay either the maturing bonds or maturing loans or the interest and debt service on those bonds and loans to China or bondholders. Uh, And that's creating some tension within the markets and within uh, the relationship between China and uh, other bilateral and international lending institutions, uh, given that there's scarce capital for these countries to use, how should they be using it? Uh, And that is an ongoing dance of geopolitical and geoeconomic consequence that has yet to be resolved. There is what is known as the DSSI, which is the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, That was um, agreed to by the G20 earlier this year at the initiative of the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, But that DSSI suggests that China and other official bilateral creditors would provide some form of debt relief to those developing countries. Um, It has been only marginally successful for a variety of very complicated reasons, but it's a a meaningful initiative uh, that has yet to actually gain full traction, but it has an impact on those countries that are beholden to both China and bondholders for paying back their debts uh, when their economies now are in stagnation or decline with questionable prospects moving forward. It's a very daunting and uh, not terribly optimistic scenario moving forward.
0: So um, moving back to those um, supply shocks you mentioned earlier, I know I know a lot of the response to the cr- uh, coronavirus crisis has been – and specifically the economic effects of it uh, – has been via central banks and monetary policy. So do you think that um, there has to be more done to address the actual supply shocks, for example, like the you know whatever was done to the oil supply earlier this year? Um, or do you think that – in general, that we could that we can um, you know focus more on monetary uh, adjustments as a, as a potential solution to you know future economic problems. Or is there more structural issues we need to address?
1: Well, again, I was focusing more on demand shocks than supply shocks, but there's uh, clearly been supply shocks as well. But your your question is about monetary policy and central banks, and I think it's a good one. So monetary policy and central banks have been enormously effective providers of liquidity and emergency support, uh, both via the Fed, the ECB, and other central banks around the world. Uh, particularly for those very developed markets where the currencies are reserve currencies and we're printing money in a Uh, low inflation environment has yet to be shown to be uh, to have negative consequences. Usually you've got inflation as a check on uh, the tendency for central banks to provide enormous amounts of liquidity. uh, And we have not seen that inflation based restriction or restraints. uh, And that's been a very healthy dynamic for the global economy. But no one whether you're Jay Powell or Christine Lagarde or, or anyone else at the central bank level, no one is suggesting that central banks are providing anything other than intermediate support on the liquidity side. They are not getting into the structural elements here. Um, and so the structural elements are, you know, both the question of fiscal and you know, structural policy changes. And uh, that remains an open question. In the U.S., we've seen a somewhat ambitious fiscal response so far. There's obviously a question about the next step of the fiscal response. In um, Europe, they've done uh, somewhat less, but still a lot more than they have in the past on both the structural and the fiscal. Uh, and around the world, uh, you know, you're seeing pressures on the fiscal authorities to, to step up where they can but again, uh, I think central bank intervention has been enormously important for, for, in particular, stock market investors in this country and bond market investors everywhere, because you have seen this uh, enormous rebound in markets while the economy is still in deep trouble, and part of that is because through the provision of that liquidity, you you've got almost nothing else to invest in if you're an investor, because if you're getting zero return or less in some cases on your safe assets that are fixed income, you are almost forced to go into the the uh, the markets to get any kind of return whatsoever. So you do have um, monetary policy that has been extremely strong for stock markets in developed countries. Uh, but again, the question is, does that translate to developing countries? Does that translate to the structural and fiscal policies that are needed to come out of this uh, in a more sustainable fashion? And that's an open question, but one that certainly, if you listen to Christine Lagarde, Jay Powell and others, certainly they do not feel is a central bank policy requirement. It is a... um, The central banking intervention has been enormously effective, but it is not intended, nor do I think it will be, the answer to the structural and fiscal needs that that are going to emanate from this crisis on the medium and longer terms. So, I mean, just on the structural, I just want to point out that Europe has taken an enormously meaningful step in creating a common euro-denominated uh, debt issuance structure: the the Euro uh, Recovery Fund, which will be an issuance of 750 billion euros of debt uh, through the European Commission. So that's the first time in that size, you've got a common euro-denominated debt issuance. That's a structural change that is enormously important for Europe, uh, and that was taken several months ago. Uh, that should not be underestimated as a very ambitious. Step that is separate and apart from monetary policy, but that augments the European response to the crisis.
0: So that kind of leads me into my uh, last question, which is: um, When thinking of new fiscal response, do you think it's better to um, work like with international bodies or more, you know, individual countries um, to address the fiscal response themselves? Like, should the should should the um, should like the IMF or World Bank or the European Commission? Um, take leading roles in their respective fields, or should countries respond individually?
1: Well, the IMF doesn't do fiscal. Uh, I mean, International organizations do not do fiscal. Uh, fiscal is the, the responsibility of national governments, with the one exception I was referring to a moment ago, which is Europe does have some fiscal constraints and oversight at the Commission.
0: But I'm, I guess I'm sort of using fiscal closely as like a as like a you know financial monetary related response or a response of 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 getting money to move around. Sorry if I use it incorrectly.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, global coordinated responses are always better than uh, each country for themselves responses. Uh, beggar thy neighbor is always a risk. Uh, If every country decides to act on its own without regard to the the broader consequences uh, to the global economy, because of course, you know, if you're trying to export stuff to other countries and they're broke, then they're not going to be buying it very much. And so uh, everything is, regardless of my earlier comments about a more nuanced uh, appreciation for globalization, you know, global trade is a good thing and you want to encourage it where you can. And you certainly don't want to take steps that discourage it by being narrow minded in how you approach your policymaking and thinking about your own country in the short term only. Uh, but a global coordinated fiscal response uh, is something that sounds good. You'll probably get, you know efforts to have communiques issued at the IMF and the G20 and other major uh, policymaking institutions, but it, it stops there. It is a commitment that can be made at the diplomatic level. It is not as if there is a grand pool of centralized funding that the people can draw upon and say we're now all going to use the following tools uh at the fiscal level to spend on this and to you know re, re, uh retrench uh, in a coordinated fashion it, it's a nice idea to think about there being global coordination that actually reflects a global response uh but in fact it is more a signaling mechanism than it is an actual implementation mechanism. So, If you go back to the response in 2009 to the global financial crisis, uh, there was a $1 trillion announcement of a globally coordinated response uh, led by the US and the UK. It was Barack Obama and Gordon Brown at the time um, under the auspices of the G20. But in fact, most of those funds were more for signaling than they were for actual expenditures. And the coordination function uh, was more, as I said earlier, as a means of showing signaling than it was any actual secretariat sitting somewhere and actually writing checks and signing off on expenditures. Uh, The world economy and the world global governance just is not structured that way.
0: uh say a thank you um mr reddickert we covered i think we went more into depth uh in this 30 minutes than they have in some of our like hour and a half long episodes well it was my pleasure
1: josh and sorry to keep it this short um busy days i know know,
0: i know you you got you got a lot of work nowadays right things are busy things are busy on
1: a lot of different fronts